Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right, everybody. We're back in the studio. Uh, We've got Darlena K. Gibson with us today. She's uh, somebody actually suggested you to me to uh, bring you on the podcast. They said that you would probably be an interesting uh, interview, and uh, I immediately messaged you on Facebook, and now we're here. So uh, just let you take off with it, introduce yourself, and tell us what you got to tell. All right. Hey, guys. I'm Darlene K. Gibson. Um, I'm so excited to be here. Actually, when you messaged me on Facebook, I was like, oh, my gosh. I was, like, so excited. Um, I really just want to talk about the main thing, grief. Um I do a lot of grief TikToks and stuff just because, unfortunately, I've had to be in the position of dealing with it, and I didn't have anybody to turn to, and I wanted to be, you know, that person that people could relate to um, because, you know, there's so many of us out there that are going through it and dealing with things, and for me, myself, like, even though... You know, I would have people surrounding me telling me, oh, if you need anything or if you need to talk, I'm here. You know, it, it didn't resonate with me because I didn't want to talk to anybody. Yeah. Especially mm-hmm. if I thought that those people ha- had no clue of what I was going through. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kind of to start it off, my first major, you know, experience with, with grief was in 2017. Um my mom got diagnosed with stage four lung cancer in July, and it was kind of suddenly. She actually had went to the doctor and was having, you know, what she thought was a chest cold, and she actually was coughing up blood, and, um, you know, they didn't really do anything. They listened, and they said, yeah, it's probably just like, you know, a chest cold, and she was like, okay, and she had been a smoker for many years prior she had quit so she had been quit smoking for like six months prior to this happening um and my mama was somebody who if she couldn't do it herself yeah it wasn't going to get done Mm -hmm. so she had woke up in the middle of the night and she was having really bad chest pain and she um had tachycardia so her heart rate was always elevated so she thought she was having a heart attack so she called um, EMS she didn't call me um, or my sister because she didn't want to worry us if it wasn't nothing you know because that's just how she was so they came and got her and took her to the hospital and um, when they did scans and stuff that's when they found the lung cancer and she died three weeks later Wow. Yeah. I mean, me and my sister and my brother, I mean, we didn't even have time to process that our mom was sick and then she was dead. 
So she died three weeks after finding out. Yes. Wow. So, you know, you initially think, you know, if somebody gets diagnosed with cancer, you know, you know, then their self and then their family, you have that time to process this is what's going on and you try to make a plan and that's not what, you know, that's not what happened. She um, went from being in the ER. They did admit her to the hospital, of course, and placed um, a port because they was going to start chemo. And Mm -hmm. so she was in the hospital. This was on a Monday. So I had taken off work and went to the hospital with her and she got to come home on Thursday. She came back to my house because um, I had worked as a certified medical assistant for 13 years and I was uh, only one in our family that really had any medical background and, you know, I knew what to do. Yeah, yeah. So she came back to her house on that Thursday. Um, we went the following Monday to the um, cancer doctor and, you know, they had done a PET scan and he was like, it's all over it had you know went all over it was yeah. all in her bones and everything so this is you know the, the next monday was a week later and um she got that diagnosis and she chose not to get treatment mm-hmm. because you know there wasn't no reason to get it because i mean basically it wasn't going to help anything and she wanted to you know be able to to enjoy what was rest, you know, what was going to be the rest of her yeah. life. And of course we could have never imagined that, you know, the Thursday of this week, she went completely vegetative. Wow. So, you know, went from talking and being my mom to just being this yeah. person that's just laying there. And, it was just, it was just heartbreaking. Her sister lives in Oklahoma and she had drove down. She actually made it from Oklahoma to Kentucky in 13 hours because she, she, didn't, moving. she didn't stop. She was trying to get there before anything progressed, but oh, unfortunately, yeah. you know, she didn't get there until yeah. after this. Um, and, you know, she... She when she passed away, it was the craziest thing. Um, I had been up for three days at this time. Um, my so my aunt was there, my sister was with me, and I was so calm. It was the weirdest thing because you know you think of seeing somebody die that you're gonna just oh yeah lose it yeah. Um, but I watched her die, and I called you know Lakes's and you know told them everything. They came and got her. And she left, and it was, I just kind of went numb. I think that I really was in shock. That's what I was fixing to say. You probably didn't have time to process any of it. Yeah, so I think that I was really just in shock. Um, And we did the, you know, the funeral really quick. Um, My mom didn't want to be, you know, displayed for everybody. She was cremated, but yeah. you know, my whole family is very, that's, you know, that's kind of what we want all of yeah, us. Yeah. Um, but she did want a funeral. So we had that and it, it was heartbreaking, you know, because that was the first time in my whole life I ever seen my dad cry. 
I, you know, my, my dad was the strongest person I ever met mm-hmm. and got up in the middle of the funeral and left. Wow. I mean, he couldn't even make it, make it through it. And it's the first time in my life that I had seen him cry. And, you know, I just, I lost something that day of me. Mm-hmm. And I, and I tell people all the time, I was like, you know, my mom was my mom, but she was my best friend. And you hear this saying all the time, you can't be your kid's friend. I don't believe that. My mom was my best friend. And yes, she was very strict, but she was my friend. And we had a perfect, phenomenal relationship. And so that happened. And two weeks later, I found out my husband was having an affair from my stepdaughter. And I, the one person I would have went to, my mother was gone. Mm. Um, and that was the first time I com- tried to commit suicide. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I got to a point where the pain was so intense. And I had, you know, I, you know, I had two chil- children at this time. Mm-hmm. But when you get to that point, you can't rationally think. I was laying in the bathroom on the floor and it's, it kind of was like an outer body experience because I could hear my kids and they was six and three. My girls was, Mm -hmm. I could hear them running around the house and it's like a part of me knew that they needed me, but I was hurting so badly that I just wanted that pain to stop. Yeah. And that was the only, you know, outlet that I, Mm -hmm. You know, that my mind at the time could think about was if I'm not here, I can't feel the pain. Wow. So, you know, fast forward a little bit after my mom passed away, my dad became that person for me. Mm-hmm. My dad became my best friend, you know, and he wasn't always, you know, a very, you know, affectionate father, but his family wasn't very affectionate. You know, there's tons of love but he wasn't a very affectionate father then when my mom passed away he took on that role and he became that person i mean there was times that he didn't know what to say and you know it was it's kind of like a pat you know like i'm gonna stand five feet away from you but i'll pat you but he was there and you know over the years he got better and he actually passed away last October on October 30th. And again, he told us that he was sick in September. So it's around like September 28th of last year. He wouldn't let me nor my sister take him to the doctor because he hates doctors. Mm -hmm. I mean, he never would go. Um, he had told us, you know, I have cirrhosis (laughs) and you know, we was like, oh, okay, well, we'll, we'll do what we got to do. Yeah. And it eventually got so bad that, um, I was working at the white house clinic and I couldn't get a hold of him. And I kept picturing like, oh my gosh, he's, I'm going to find him dead in his house. So I left and I like flew up to 90 cause he lived in Anvil and I got to his house and he was just laying there and he was okay. And I begged him, please, please just, you know, let me take you to the hospital. And I was like, if you let me call the ambulance, you're not going to have to wait in the waiting room. They're going to take you straight back. Uh-huh. And this was, you know, weeks of me and my sister trying to get him to go. 
and he finally agreed. And that this was the first time in my life that I, I looked at my dad and he was broken. He couldn't put his shoes on by himself. I helped him put his shoes on. Yeah. Um, but we got him to the hospital in London and they got him straight back. And, um, my sister lived in London. She came over and, you know, we sat there for hours and I was like, you know, it's going to be fine because now that we've got him in the hospital, they're going to fix him. Yeah. You know, they're going to fix him because that's what they do. Yeah. Um, and I, I just knew, you know, I just knew that God was not going to make me live this life with no parents. Yeah. You know, I was 28 when my mom died, you know, I was, I was 33 last mm. year, you know, my my kids are 12 and nine, you know, I was like, Oh, God's not going to make me live this world without anybody. in my, you know, mm. that's in your corner. You know what I mean? Because, yeah. you know, when I tell people that a parent's love is unlike any other love that you will have in this world. And I know there's some crappy parents out there. Yeah. So maybe some people don't experience that. That wasn't, <clears throat> you know, my experience growing up. Um, you know, my mom was always that person for me when she passed. That's what my dad was. He was my biggest cheerleader, my number one supporter, my secret keeper. Um, it didn't matter if what I did was right or wrong. He never judged. Mm -hmm. He just accepted me and loved me regardless. And if I was sad, he was sad. If I was angry, he was angry. If I didn't like this person, he was like, who are we not liking? You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he didn't, he didn't, didn't like them. Yeah. Um, but so they transferred him from um, London Hospital, St. Joe, to UK. And we had been at St. Joe for like eight hours. They transferred us up there <coughs> and um, they took him, of course, by ambulance. Me and my sister followed and we got up there and it was just so much happened so quickly. Yeah. Um, this was on a Thursday. And by the time, you know, they got him transferred to UK, we was into Friday morning. Um, so they, they're going all over all this stuff of how they can fix him. He's probably going to need a liver transplant. So we take that in and we're like, okay, this is what we're going to have to do from step to step to step. So me and my sister stayed in the hospital Friday night and Saturday, Saturday um, morning. My sister, she is the manager at Wildcat Off-Road Park in London. Yeah. And she was like, I've got to go in and do payroll um, and she said, I've got to take a shower and I need some sleep. And I was like, okay, it's fine. I'll stay. I said, it's, you know, it's, it, I've got this mm -hmm. because he was fine. I mean, he actually had started doing better. He was, you know, drinking. We had got him to eat, eat some like, um, frozen yogurt or something. And yeah. he hadn't been doing that. And I was like, okay, we're getting better. Yeah. And then, you know, my partner came up there and <clears throat> he asked me, he was like, do you want me to stay? And I was like, no, I mean, nobody likes staying in the hospital. There's, you know, there's this one crappy pullout 
chair that you can sleep in that you can't even sleep in. Yeah, yeah. I said, no, just, I said, just, it's fine. Just go on and um, it'll be okay. But at this time, I had been awake since five o'clock Thursday morning. Um, so I did take a, I, t- I you know, I, I took a little, little nap. It was probably like, I don't know, about an hour. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was, that refueled me enough to, to get going. Yeah. And I was like, okay. Well, little did I know that my world was about to be flipped upside down. I was in the hospital by myself. Um, he ended up having a stroke. Oh. So they come in. And, you know, they bring the rapid response team in. And I actually ended up getting into it with a nurse because she tried to say he coded. And I'm like, you know, I ain't trying to tell you how to do your job, but I've done this for 13 years. Yeah. I've actually worked on people that's coded. And he hadn't fully coded. Yeah. Um, and thankfully, one of the doctors told her, no, he's not fully coded. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, he quit talking and everything. Yeah. And they was like, we have to move him up to ICU. And I was like, okay. So I don't know if you know much about UK Hospital. Yeah, I know a lot about it. <laughs> but, you know, there's this back part of the hospital. Mm-hmm. And yep. it is scary. Like, it is scary. And here I am, you know, they're rolling my dad in this bed. And we're walking through the back side of UK Hospital yeah. to go the fastest way up to ICU. And I'm like. Oh my God, this is like the death tunnel or something. Yeah, it's a little sketchy. It's, yeah, it it's nothing like the new part. Like it's yeah. like very original. It's very old. And I was like, okay. And you know, again, I'm trying to just I'm trying to even think, you know, because at this time my mind is not even working properly because I've went days without sleep. Yeah. I've not really ate what you should eat. Um so we get in the elevator and I'm holding my dad's hand and, you know, he ain't saying much, but he, he would squeeze my hand every once in a while. And, um, I'm like, okay. And so we get up there and they put me in the waiting room. This is like one fifteen in the morning Yeah. Uh, on Sunday. <clears throat> and they was like, um, we're going to get him set up and I'm going to come talk to you. And I was like, okay. So one, I'm freezing to death. I'm tired. Yeah. I'm expecting them to come back in 15 minutes. And I wait and I wait. And I'm in this waiting room by myself in the ICU. And then I hear a woman screaming, screaming and begging God to not let this be happening. And I'm like, you know, what's going on? Yeah. And her child had died. Oh, God. And I'm in this waiting room by myself and, you know, I'm three days of no sleep and Mm -hmm. hardly any food. And then this happens. And, you know, for that split second, I put myself in her shoes like, oh, my gosh, what would I do if my child passed away? Yeah. So the doctor comes out like right after that. And I'm just... I'm just, I don't know. I was, I was blank because it's like my whole mind shut down. Like my whole mind shut down. So the doctor comes in and he was like, we 
got to do this um, procedure to check brain function um, because, you know, he's, you know, been out of it for this long, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, it's middle of the night. I can't get a hold of my sister. I mean, I probably could if I rung her phone off the hook, but she needed sleep. Yeah. And he was like, we have to, you know, inc- incubate him or whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have to have your permission since you're, you know, the next of kin. Yeah. So I'm asking, you know, all these questions and, you know, what do you do? You know, you have a doctor in front of you saying this is what needs to happen. So I'm like, okay. Still at this time, I'm thinking he's going to be fine. Yeah. You know, I still, I still in my heart believed that. And so about 345, they come back and get me and they, they say, you can go ahead and come, come back here. Um, they're getting ready to bring him back and I was like okay so they take me into this ICU room which is all glass you know like there's the walls are glass and I Mm -hmm. get it you know they need to observe but I'd never been in that situation before myself I'd never been to an ICU Mm -hmm. in in the hospital and I walk in and it is like a scene literally from Grey's Anatomy because there's gloves and gauze and bloody stuff all over the floor wow and i sit down they have this little couch and i sit down and i completely lost hearing i could see the nurse typing and all this stuff and they rolled my dad back in and when they took him from me he was him he had one IV in, um, and of course he had a catheter in. Yeah. They brought him back to me, and he had IVs in both arms, both feet, and three tubes coming out of his mouth. And wow. they're talking, and I can't hear them. And it had to be some kind of nervous system shutdown because the sensory overload yes, or something. Because I could see them, yeah. but I could not hear them. And eventually, you know, once it kind of died down and there wasn't so many people, um, you know, and I finally kind of came back to myself and I was like, oh, okay. Um, I asked the nurse and I said, can you just tell me what's going on? And so she, you know, explained the procedure, um, what they found. And he did have brain activity, like um, what they found and everything. And she, she said... You know, he um, is on the vent. He's on two forms of life support right now. And still at that time, you know, even hearing that, you know, if anybody else would tell me that, I'm going to think life support, somebody's probably going to die, you know. But I didn't think that. I was like, oh, okay, well, he'll come out of it. And and I was like, "Um, is he, I said, but is he doing better? And And she looked at me and she said, I'll just be honest with you. She said, no, he's not getting any better. I was like, okay. So seven in the morning, that's when I start calling people. And yeah. I call my sister and I was like, you need to come up here now. You know, you, you know, it's really bad. And so she left work and came straight up there. And I have a ginormous family. Like my family is huge. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to text the people that I have in my phone and this and that. At the same time, just trying to process what's going on. Um, 
So my sister gets there. You know, I had called my ex-husband, um, and his dad had brought my kids up to to the hospital, and I was like, you know, I uh, he's not going to make it. Like, it finally did sink in. Yeah. You know, once I was able to kind of process what was happening, I was like, this is, he's not going to come out of this. Mm. And that's when I broke. And I had the worst panic attack I think I've ever had in my life. Um, and two of my dad's brothers came up there with their wives and sat with us for a while and just kind of talked and we had like a person from the the chaplain come in hmm. or the chapel yeah. um and talk to us and you know after my mom died you know we grew up very very christian like we started out baptist and we went pentecostal so I, you know i that was always a part of my life but when my mom died yeah i lost that part of me hmm. um i had slowly started getting it back and it was like when I knew that my dad was going to die, I was I was just done. I was done because I couldn't imagine believing in a higher power that sh- had all this power, yeah. but chose to <clears throat> put me through so much pain and agony. Well, I can understand that. And so this guy comes in and, he, you know, he's he's really he was really great. And he was like talking to the family um, and he was like, are you guys believers? And as he went around the circle of people we had there and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He got to me and I was like, no, Hmm. I'm not. And he was like, can I ask you why? And I was like, yeah, sure. So because when my mom got sick, I had faith that I think could have truly moved a mountain. Mm Mm-hmm. And I believed he was going to heal her, and it didn't happen. And then you're taking the only person in my life that completely, utterly gets me, loves me unconditionally mm-hmm. away from me. You're t- taking a papa away from my kids. Yeah. You know, and... I said, no. And I said, I'm, I'm mad. And it was the first time that anybody looked at me and said, it's okay to be mad at God. Yeah. Because every other person from, for as long as I can remember said, well, you can't be mad at God. This was the first person that looked at me and said, you can be mad at God because God can handle it. Oh yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. And I kind of just sat back and um, I had another breakdown. Like, you know, you know, told my sister, I was like, I cannot do this again. I cannot go through this again. Now, was this the first time that you had showed emotion from your mother's passing too? Yes, because my way of dealing with with things was to not deal with them yeah yeah if i didn't think about them Hmm. didn't process them it wasn't real yeah i get that and 
you know, my dad's younger brother, he left, um, which I'm sure, you know, that, that, that was hard to see that, but mm-hmm. you know, his other brother and his wife stayed with us. Um, and the doctor came back in and basically told us, you know, there's n- nothing else that we can do. You know, we can keep him on life support, but it's not going to change. Yeah. And, um, at this time, you know, I've done cussed one doctor because, mm-hmm. you know, you, it's not even that that's the person that I am, but I was just so overwhelmed with emotion and feelings and sadness and anger. Yeah. Um, greatest doctor ever though. Didn't mm-hmm. bat an eye was still super nice and super pro- professional. Yeah. Um, but that's when my sister looked at me and she said, I can't make this decision. Okay. And I was like, okay. My dad always told me and her both, if something ever happens to me, I do not want a machine to keep me alive. And that's what I told her. And she was like, he did say that all the time. Mm -hmm. So I looked at the doctor and I said, you know, take this shit away. You know, take it away. I want all of it out of here. Mm -hmm. And they was like, okay. Um, so two nurses came in and started un- unhooking him and they was going over, you know, what to expect. And, you know, they said, you know, sometimes it's qu- quick, but sometimes it can take hours. And I was like, mm. oh my gosh, I, was, I can't, you know, I can't. Who could? Um, so they, you know, was doing all that. And I had went and got my oldest daughter. Um, she was 11 at the time. And they wasn't going to let her back there. Mm-hmm. And they was like, you know, um, we don't really recommend it because, you know, for children that can, you know, this can be scarring. And I was like, I understand that. But she watched her grandmother die. Yeah. And I want her to say goodbye. Mm-hmm. Um, my youngest daughter, um, they said, well, um, she said, I'll leave it up to you. Well, you usually don't allow it, but I'll leave it up to you. And I was like, you know this is who they've got. This is their family. You know, mm-hmm. they don't have anybody else. Yeah. Um, and I went out and got them and my youngest daughter, she was like, no, I don't want to go. And, um, my oldest daughter, who's 11, um, she came back there and she's such a special, sweet child. She, um, she has Asperger's, mm-hmm. um, which they don't call it that anymore. They, right, you right. know, call it being on the autism spectrum, but she's yeah. such a special, sweet child. And she walked back there, um, and I t- stopped her before we went about around the curtain, and I said, Sissy, I was like, this is going to be really scary. I said, that doesn't look like Papal. It's him. I was like, but it's very scary. Mm-hmm. I said, he's got a lot of machines around him. I said, he's got, you know, a lot of, you know, tubes coming out and stuff. And she just grabbed my hand, and she said, Mommy, I'm not scared. And I was like, Okay. So we walked around the curtain and I was expecting her to kind of be startled and she wasn't. She walked over there to him and grabbed his hand and she said, Papa, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. And she said, I love you and I'm going to miss you so much, but you get to be with Mamaw now. Wow. And she was fine. Like she cried for just a second and she was fine. Um, they finished taking, you know, everything else off. 
And, you know, we was, you know, preparing for the worst. You know, it's going to last a long time. Mm -hmm. 60 seconds, like to the second, 60 seconds. Yeah. And, you know, it was, you know, it was over. Yeah. And the nurse came back in and she was crying. And she said, I'm so sorry. This is so unprofessional. And I was like, well, it's okay. Death is hard on anybody. And she said, but she said, I've. <clears throat> she said, I always, she said, well, I've worked ICU for five years, and she said, I've never seen a family have so much love and try to move, you know, move past this. And I was like, well, that's what we do. Yeah. Um, And, you know, that was it, you know. And I, I went home, and I shut completely down. I shut completely down because... I couldn't, I couldn't function because I didn't know how to live in a world without either of my parents because mm. I'd never had to before. Yeah. Um, so that's when I started binge drinking. Okay. So that, that was on, you know, we come, come home Sunday night actually stopped on the way home and got stuff because I cannot deal with this pain. Yeah. My kids um, were, were with the sitter who's phenomenal. She's like a second mother to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew they was safe because I was able to think at that time that they're, you know, they're safe. So you was planning for them without you. Yeah. And so I drank and I drank and I drank, and I drank, and um, we we ended up, um, we do a lot of, you know, riding, we have a razor, yeah. and he was like, you know, let's just get out and, you know, do something, and I enjoy that, and I was like, okay, this will this this will be fun. Well, I literally, I don't know how I didn't get, like, literally get alcohol poisoning, because I drank so much, mm-hmm. and I came home. You know, he went to bed and I went in the bathroom and again, it was this out of body experience and I was hurting and I was hurting and I was hurting. And of course I was so inebriated that I couldn't think right. Um, and that was my second suicide attempt. And the first time it didn't work and I took pills and I was like, I'm not doing that again. I was going to ask what method yeah. did you try? So the first time, I mean, I don't even know that it was anything that could have done anything. Yeah. All I knew is that that's what I want to do because I don't, I don't like pain. Who yeah, likes yeah. pain? I don't want to, I don't want to hurt myself, you know? Yeah. But this time was totally different. And I literally just grabbed a pair of haircut and scissors and I was sitting there in the bathroom floor and I was like, I'm, I'm just done. And people will call me crazy and that's okay. But I know I saw the devil that night. Yeah. I saw the devil in the bathroom with me who told me, if you want the pain to stop, you can stop it and you can be with them. Oh, wow. And so I did. I cut, I don't even know how many times I cut. And I kind of felt myself fading out. Mm. And 
I could see the, I, I could see the devil in the background. And I think, you know, between inebriation and being at the weakest point in my life, I remember falling over in the floor and everything around me was fading black. Mm-hmm. And I heard my dad say, holler for Tiff. And that's my sister. Holler for Tiff. And I was like, what? Yeah. He was like, holler for Tiff. So that's what I did. I, tr- I don't know how loud it was because I was so weak. Mm-hmm. My sister wasn't there. My sister lives in London. But he heard it out of a sleep. Oh, wow. And was able to kick the bathroom door in and get to me. Yeah. And um, for the next little bit, I didn't have time to think about my dad being gone or that happening because I was trying to get my dad's house. So I was, you know, in and out of court and I was on the phone with everybody trying to get my dad's house. And Mm -hmm. um, that kept me occupied. Yeah. Um, Because his house had actually went into foreclosure and I was going through all this process and, you know, that kept me occupied. And I knew, you know, that's my safe haven. That's my home. If I can get to this home, I'm going to feel peace. And when that fell through, everything did. So I lost a piece of myself when my mom died. My dad died. And I lost the other piece of myself. And I felt like I was an empty shell walking around of the person that used to be. Mm-hmm. So I started listening to grief podcast and I, you know, I, I started going back to therapy and I was like, I, you know, I've, I've got to be here for my kids. Yeah. They don't have their mama and papa. Mm-hmm. They have me and they have my sister and that's it. I've got to be there for them. Yeah. But I was awful. I wasn't the person that I used to be. You know, I'm a very usually happy, bubbly, you know, person who I try to see the good in everything because I know what bad really is. Oh, yeah. Um, so I started to get better and I was like, okay. And then I got fired from my job that I had been at for seven and a half years. Um, after just winning employee of the year and I kind of got dragged back down. Like, you know, I have no meaning in life. Like I'm not the mother my kids need because mm-hmm. I don't even know how to be me. Yeah. And that's when I decided that there has to be something more. And I'm still not, you know, you know, faithfully, I'm, I do believe again, um, I'm not where I need to be. Um, but I'm working on it. Yeah. And I didn't want to go to therapy anymore because I didn't feel like that was helping me. And I was crying myself to sleep. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sleeping. So I started listening to this grief podcast and it was like her opening statement was exactly how I felt. And I was like, there is somebody that 
truly knows what I'm going through. Yeah. And her father had passed away. And she was talking about that. And she said stuff that people don't typically want to hear. You know, nobody likes to talk about grief. It literally is the elephant in the room. If you walk yeah. into a room and somebody's, you know, talking about death or somebody passing, they're probably going to walk out of that room because it's uncomfortable. People oh, don't yeah. want to deal with that. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, is it is real. Mm. And, you know, it was <clears> like, you know, after my mom passed and then my dad passed, you know, I got a thousand I'm sorry's. And, you know, my thinking was, why are you sorry? Yeah. I mean, you're not going through it because you think that. Of course, I never said that. I thanked everybody because, well, yeah. you know, that's the normal thing to say is I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And then I had my religious people, family and friends saying, well, they're in a better place. Okay. Or they're always with you. Yeah. Now, Jack, they're not with me. They're not here. I can't see them. I can't touch them. I can't hear them. Mm-hmm. They're not here with me. Yep. Or, I mean, how many times did I hear, they wouldn't want you to be sad? No, they wouldn't. They loved me. They wouldn't want me to cry. But they're not here to wipe those tears. All that being told that, I would imagine, just pisses you off even more. And it does, especially when it's coming from people who don't understand that full loss, you know, and that grieving process. They have good intentions. Exactly. But they just don't understand. And, you know... That's, you know, that's what you say when somebody passes. Yeah. I'm sorry for your loss. I mean, I've said it. We all say it. Oh, I'm guilty of it, too. You know? And then, I mean, I had people say, well, be thankful for the time you got with them. What time? You know? What time? But I finally was like, you know, something's got to give. I got fired from this job. I'm <clears> sitting at home. I'm in this super deep, dark depression. Yeah. And, you know, I'm looking at these other jobs and I'm like, I really don't want to go back to clinical work. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a really bad experience with it. You know, I loved my, you know, I loved my job and I loved what I did and I loved taking care of people. It's my passion. Yeah. Um, but I didn't really want to do that. Um, and I have lupus, so the clinical work is, was extremely hard on my body. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, I had discussed with my partner, I really think that I want to go back to school because I've been wanting to do this for a very long time and I have the opportunity to now. Yeah. So that's when I started, you know, researching, going back to school and I'm sitting, you know, on my front porch um, by myself. You know, my partner's at work. And the kids was at, you know, at the sitters because they live on a farm and they get to be kids. Mm-hmm. And I'm just sitting there and I get a phone call. And it's my friend Becky. And, you know, she had worked at the White House Clinic and went and went on to this recovery 
place and she called me and she was like, I referred you for a job. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I don't even know if you want to do it, but I think you'd be really good at it. Yeah. And I was like, well, okay. And she sent me the link to do the application and stuff. And I'm reading all over it. And I was like, I don't, I mean, I, I had worked in recovery cause we did that at, um, at my clinic job, you know, we had a program and I was like, <laughs> I, I know all about it. And I was yeah. like, okay. And I was like, I don't, I don't know if I'm what they're looking for. So I, you know, I didn't, you know, reach out to this place. It came to me. I put in an application two days later, they call me. They was like, um, we seen you, you know, put an application. You was highly recommended by a current employee. And I was like, Oh, thank you. And they said, we're going to do a phone interview. They call. It's just simple phone interview. Did that. The very next day they did a zoom meeting. And, um, basically, you know, I didn't, try to hide anything. I know a lot of times you go into a job a interview and you like try to show them the best parts of you. Yeah. Yeah. But I wasn't the best part of myself and I was like, they're either going to get this or they're not going to get me because yeah. I'm still healing. Mm -hmm. And you know, they offered me this job and I took this job and it has been the biggest blessing because you know, I myself have never had a substance abuse problem. Mm -hmm. My sister, who was the whole reason that I wanted to work in recovery, um, she's my biggest inspiration. She was very, very bad on drugs. I'll recall. Yeah. Terrible person, did terrible things, was in and out of jail, I mean, was not a great person, but I still loved her. She's my sister. Well, yeah. And then I seen her completely change her life because she chose God. And, you know, she had went to a Suboxone clinic and was taking that to get off of the drugs. Yeah. Um, she, she started going to Brian Gabbard's church. Mm-hmm. And, um, she actually met her now husband there and she was, you know, working in London and driving back and forth. And she said she was driving down 290 and God said, you don't need those. And she had just got her Suboxone field. She tossed them out the window wow. and has been completely <clears throat> clean and sober for over eight years now. That's faith right there. And. I've seen her go through the hardest things in her life because I went through them and yeah. she stayed strong when everyone around her would have understood if she broke. Yeah. And to me, that is true strength. Mm -hmm. You know, when you are able to stay strong and keep doing the right thing, that is strength. Yeah. And then, you know, my partner of three years now, which we grew up together, we've known each other for 20 years. Mm -hmm. Very bad drug addict. Yeah. Not a great person. <laughs> Did very bad things. Mm -hmm. um, and it took him getting in bad, bad trouble and losing everything for, you know, 
for that to happen. And sometimes that's what it takes. It does. Because he, you know, and he'll tell you, you don't, he wouldn't have got clean and sober on his own. Mm -hmm. Getting in trouble, going to jail, going to prison forced him to become this. So now he's over four years sober now. That's awesome. And then I was like, that's what I'm going to go to school for. Um, I was like, I don't have the personal, you know, story to tell people, but I've got these two phenomenal people in my life that does. And I'm working at this job where I get to meet with members every day and I hear their stories and I hear their battles and their struggles and it gives you a different light into the substance abuse. You know, many people will say, oh, well, they chose that. When they first did it, they might have chosen it, but nobody chooses to take a drink of alcohol or take a pain pill or do this thinking they're going to become addicted. Yeah, that's true. So all of this stuff was falling into place. I got accepted into a phenomenal college program that works with, you know, my busy, you know, life of a mom with three girls and my work schedule, you know, and I'm, I'm like a quarter of ways through my bachelor's program in psychology now. Wow. So starting that opened my eyes and I started doing holistic medicine and healing. Oh, wow. Um, and you know, <clears throat> people call it witchy woo stuff. And I probably would have two years ago. Cause like, oh, that is so stupid. You know, that is the <laughs> stupidest thing I ever heard. You and your breathing yeah. techniques. But I started doing them and I, you know, started following all these people and slowly, you know, integrating that stuff into my life. Mm -hmm. And it healed me. You know, I still have bad days, but I was able to, you know, do meditation. Even if it's 10 minutes a day, I'm able to take that 10 minutes and focus, you know, on my mind and on my body. Mm -hmm. And when I'm telling people about it, I'm like, what do you think that they did years ago? You know, years ago. And I, I just always refer to um, Native Americans because, you know, I have a strong family history of that. Uh -huh. And I was like, they didn't have doctors and medicine. Everything that they needed, the earth provided. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so I've started living my life that way. Um, if I need it and the earth can't provide it for me, yeah. then I don't truly need it. Yeah. Um, and it's just like changed my life. Um, do I still have days where I hurt? Yeah, I do. You know, mm -hmm. grief sucks. But I also think that people... You know, you need to, you do need to accept it because when you do what I did and just, you know, force it to the back burner and don't think about it, you never allow your mind and body to heal from that trauma. Yeah. And, you know, it sucks that I went through that and I've learned a lot from being at this recovery center that I work with. Because I am able to talk to these members. And it's like I told my sister. I said, if my 
heartbreak and my pain can help at least one person, then I'm doing what I was meant to do. Absolutely. Because there's so many people out there struggling, Mm -hmm. you know, with grief and grief can come from any aspect of life. It doesn't have to come from death. Yeah. But if I can take, you know, what I went through, which was a terrible, dark place in my life and be that light for somebody else so that they can heal, then I'm doing what I was meant to do. Oh yeah. There's a lot of power both. Well, there's two types of people I feel like that gets in this line of work that you're in people that has been through it Mm -hmm. and needing some type of therapy from helping others Mm -hmm. and seeing them through these issues. And then there's people that hasn't ever been through anything like that, that wants a learning experience Mm -hmm. from those same type of people. Absolutely. Yeah. I had a lady on this podcast just the other day, Lynetta Hunter. Yeah. You probably know Lynetta. Yeah, she I do. does uh, uh she goes to the jail quite often mm-hmm. and and uh with the the female inmates up there. And she does it for them and helps them and and does things for them, but she gets so much back in return. Absolutely. You know. And what you said a minute ago about you I'm the same way. I've never learned anything from somebody that hasn't went through the same thing. Mm-hmm. If you can't if you don't know from experience yeah. what I'm talking about, I ain't going to get nothing from you. No. You know, now you can, you can pray for me. You mm-hmm. can console me and stuff like that. And I love, that's awesome. Yep. But don't try to tell me how it is. Exactly. Because you don't know. Yeah. You, you know, know what I mean? And you get that a lot, you know, they're trying to be there for you. And that's and, awesome. And, and it is. And, and, and you know, it's, it is love and stuff, but you can't, it's like you said, you can't help me if you don't know what I'm going through. No, you can't. I mean, you know, that would be like me, you know, even though I love helping the people in recovery, mm-hmm. I feel like I could, you know, use my alcohol problem and somewhat relate, Mm -hmm. but I can't relate to it on a deep personal level of me myself being there. Um, So I can tell them, you know, what I've learned from my sister and my partner who really opened up my eyes, you know, because it's easy to be very mad at an addict. Oh, yeah. It is easy to have hate for an addict. Mm -hmm. But then when I got to see through their eyes, what they felt. Yeah. I was like, okay, I I get it now. Yeah. Um, and you know, in recovery, you know, they deal with a lot of grief because they may have not have physically lost a loved one, mm-hmm. you know, they might have not passed away, but they've lost people because people have given up on them. Yeah. And they just need somebody in their corner mm-hmm. that's going to say, hey, you went one day without using. I'm proud of you. Absolutely. That's a big step. Mm-hmm. Huge. Yeah. It really is. I don't think even I probably don't understand the whole scope mm-hmm. of what a huge accomplishment one day of being sober is to an addict. Mm-hmm. And I... I think it, 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 it people 
I know I never did until I started having people that dealt with addiction on this podcast and stuff. Mm-hmm. People don't realize they may think that uh, that's a choice that they made to mm-hmm. be an addict. Just like you said a few minutes ago, it's not a choice. It, the first time they made a choice. Yeah. I completely agree with what you said mm-hmm. there. After that, it's a trap. It's it nothing is. but a trap. That they it's a it's a hole that somebody dug and threw them in. They can't get out. Because mm-hmm. it, you know, and I use this analogy a lot. You know, it, you know, completely consumes and possesses that person. Oh yeah. Because the person that they used to be is no longer there. It's hidden somewhere at the That's bottom. True. That's very true. It takes over the whole person inside and out. Yeah. And, you know, that's why, you know, choices that they make or actions, it's not them because they're not able to make those choices that they want to rationally make. Yeah. And, I, you know, and I can relate to that because do you know how many times that somebody's called me selfish for, you know, being suicidal mm-hmm. or why would you want to put your family through that? Well, yeah. because at that moment, I'm not rationally there. I'm not thinking yep. clearly. M- your mind goes somewhere else mm-hmm. and you're not able to make decisions that you normally would Yeah. because I would never take myself from my girls yeah. ever. Mm-hmm. I, you know, as a, you know, I was adu- an adult when my parents died and I still needed them. I would never put my kids through that. Oh, yeah. But you get to a point to where you can't think <clears throat> rationally. And I have to tell myself when I wake up in the morning, I have to look myself in the mirror and say, you got out of bed this morning. I'm proud of you. And I'm trying to do that with my girls too, you know, even the small things, you know, I'm proud of you. You did good. And, you know, I have to do that daily with myself. I, I write in a journal, which journaling is an awesome healing process. It it really is. I, I went to therapy years ago and I was prescribed journaling. Yes. And, you know, people think, oh, well, that's dumb. I don't have time. There are some days, and my journal is a little different. Yeah. I'm probably on my 10th one now, but my journal is to my parents. Okay. So I talk to them as yeah. if I'm talking to them. I just mm-hmm. write it down, and some days I write 10 pages. Yeah. Some days it's just something quick. Mm-hmm. But I have learned that if I can write it down and get it out of my head, mm-hmm. I'm not going to continue to think about, especially if it's something negative, if I can get it out of my head and acknowledge that that is how I'm feeling Mm -hmm. and that it's okay to feel that way, then I'm doing better. It's exactly how my therapist put it mm-hmm. to me. He called it a con- uh, a form of con- controlled chaos. Yes. Because I had a lot of rage built up in mm-hmm. me. I was mad at everybody. And uh, he said, uh, no matter what you're thinking, the deepest, darkest, most chaotic, gory, mm-hmm. whatever, write it down. Yes. Just as like, just like you say it, like you would just speak it, write it in that mm-hmm. book. He said, you need to get those thoughts on paper and, and let them... 
come to fruition on paper and get them out of your head. Absolutely. And it really works. It does and I, work. I, 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 uh, I recommend that to anybody. I do there. too, you know, and I, you know, I'm tr- trying to get my girls into actually doing that too. Um, as well as, you know, telling them that any feeling that you're having, you're allowed to have that feeling. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and it's like on my on my TikTok that I do, and I don't have many followers because I I don't know, I'm not nobody even knows who I am, but I do a ton of grief videos on there mm-hmm. um because I want to explain to people how, <clears throat> what I've been through and I'm constantly telling people that it is okay if you're not okay. Oh yeah. Because there's not a timeline on grief. There's not a end of the rope. Oh, it's been a year. Get over it. Mm -hmm. That is not how grief works. And being on the other end of it, of being the person who's lost somebody, you definitely do go through those five stages of grief. Yeah. And it's not in order. I mean, one day you're going to be mad and one day you're going to accept it. And one day you're going to do bargaining. Um, and one day you might have all of those feelings in one day, Yeah. but it's so important for people to know that any feeling that you're having one is okay. And two, you're allowed to feel how you feel. I mean, there's no right or wrong way to feel if you're happy. That's phenomenal. That's great. But if you're sad, that's okay too. If you're angry, that's okay because we're only human. I'm going to tell you, uh, I believe people may, it's unfortunate, but I think people may be kind of standoffish to the idea of writing down in a journal or writing exactly what they're thinking because they're thinking, well, God, that sounds like I need to be in a straitjacket yeah. or something. But I'm going to tell you, I've got a stack of journals in that closet right there, and if you was to read some of it, it's the worst horror book you've ever wrote, read. Oh, I, uh, listen, read I understand life. that completely. Uh, there's things in there that would uh, put me on uh, uh, Charles Manson status. Uh, listen, that's how mine but is. But that's how he told me to do it, and it's helped. And it does help because you're not harboring those thoughts and those feelings. And it's and unhealthy to keep those in your is. head. It really is. And it may sound stupid, but I know you'll agree with this. For whatever reason... Writing them down is a release. It, it is. It really is a release. You're able to let go of that. And, you know, sometimes you feel like you can't talk to people. I mean, because, heck, if you, like you said, if you was to read some of mine, you'd be like, yeah. certified crazy. <laughs> you know, because. Yeah. Oh, it's that's what I'll it be is. writing some positive something and I get pissed off and then it's five pages. Pages of cussing yeah. and scribbling something out and yeah. drawing something. And then, you know, but if it's in my mind, I need to get it out so that I, I don't allow, especially if it's negative, I don't allow that to consume me yeah. because I am that type of person. I've mm-hmm. got that type of personality. If you're happy and I'm surrounded by happiness, then I'm happy. Mm-hmm. Um. But if there's something negative around me, I'm like a sponge. I suck up that negativity and that anger, yeah. and it just just bulls in me. Yeah. So 
every day. Sometimes it's multiple times a day. I write in that journal to my mom and dad, and I would talk to them just like they was in front of me. That's good. Because, you know, I'm not going to change, and that helps me to get it out and to know that, you know, no, they can't talk back to me. They can't give me the answers I need, but I know what they would say. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, you know, is it what I need to hear or what I want to hear? Pro- probably, because that's what parents do. Yeah. You know, my kids, if they make a mistake, I'm going to tell them that they made a mistake. Mm-hmm. But then I also want them to know that, you know, they say this all the time. Mommy, are you mad at me? I'm never mad at you. And that's the truth. I'm not ever mad at you. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't necessarily like what you did or how you went about it, but I'm not mad at you. Um, Let's talk about it, you know. Let's figure it yeah, out. That's 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 huge. And you know, I've I fail at that a lot myself with I've got twin uh twin boys, ten years old up there. And uh I'll get mad at them sometimes for something that they did or said, and I shouldn't, because they're ten years old. Mm-hmm. They're learning. This is life. This is what I'm a parent for, is to teach them the right mm-hmm. versus the wrong way. And I feel probably most parents, you know, get oh, yeah. mad at things and, and, and it's probably, it's normal. But, uh, when you've got young kids like that, you're supposed to mold them into the exactly. person that they need to be. Uh, nobody's perfect. I'm far from perfect, but I try at least. Well, yeah. Know? And that's all we can do is try oh, because, yeah. um, you know, especially in my situation, I mean, I didn't have any guidance. Yeah. You know, when, when my mother passed away, I mean, I didn't have anybody to ask, like, how do you raise girls? My mom had two girls, you know, up until I was 10 and then had my brother. But I'm like, my girls fight constantly. They, I really think they hate each other, but then I, they show a little spark of love. And I'm like, oh, yeah. they do love each other. But from the time they wake up, Till they go to bed, it's constant fighting. Yeah. And, you know, I would love to be able to call my mom and be like, how did you do this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you was a saint. Yeah. I mean, you didn't even, even complain. You just did it. Yeah. I feel like all I do is complain. I'm hard <laughs> on myself with our boys because they had a, a, a really rough uh, start to life. They was micro-premies. Oh, yeah. And uh, they was in UK hospital in the NICU up there for 97 days. Uh, They was legitimately the size of that bottle of water right there. Probably a little bit shorter, actually, but no bigger round. That's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I took a knee several times in the NICU when they would code, and they'd just stop breathing. You know, they'd pull the top off them incubators and start bagging them, and I'd just fall out. You know. Oh, I can't imagine. And uh, my wife don't know this. <laughs> she probably will now. <laughs> but <laughs> right? I, she, there was a, there was an instance where there was a I can't remember the exactly what happened, but some doctor was trying to do something or make a decision with that I didn't we didn't want him to, to make or something that we didn't want him to do. Right. So I stepped out of the NICU and uh, I grabbed him by the shirt collar and lifted him up and threw him against the wall. Because you get to that point. Well, I mean, my wife is a champ. My wife is a superhero. She, in her own way, was freaking out. But she was able to keep her cool. Enough to make decisions that needed needed to be made. I was worthless. (laughs) 
completely in every sense of the word. I was helpless. I was worthless. I wasn't good for nothing. I was afraid to touch them because mm-hmm. they were so uh, fragile that, I mean, doing this to them would literally tear their skin. Yeah. You couldn't stroke them or, or rub them. So uh, that really stems from... I believe I, I've had PTSD for a long time, mm-hmm. even before my boys, but that really intensified it. Oh, yeah. Them going through that and seeing them being having to be bagged and all these wires coming from them and them, them intubated and excavating themselves and them stopping breathing. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a living I mean, nightmare. And that's true trauma. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you can kind of learn to, you know, get better Mm. but our minds create what's called a trauma bond yeah i ain't never heard yeah a trauma bond which is very closely you know related to ptsd okay and you know we may think that we're getting better but when you create these trauma bonds Mm -hmm. um that sticks with you and even when you think that. you're better, yeah. um, you find yourself going back to that trauma bond and reacting to certain certain situations like you did during that initial trauma. That makes I have never thought of it that way, but that makes perfect sense because our boy Branson, they had came home from the hospital. I don't believe it was very long after they'd come from the hospital. My mom, thank God for my mom, she had was able to watch them for us during the day and feed them and stuff. Yeah. They was on heart monitors and oxygen when they came home. So you can imagine just the stress and stuff. But uh, I was over there feeding him from a bottle, and he got choked. And he turned his blues the bottom of that candle right there. And I... I was, I'm amazed that I had enough wherewithal in me to grab him, turn him over on his Mm -hmm. belly and start beating him in the back. And, uh, he was blue. His tongue was hanging out and everything. Finally, he took a breath and I just wilted. I gave him to my mom and I fell on the floor. Yeah. So, and this is going to sound crazy, but after that, and up until this second right now, not so much now, but I still watch him when he's eating. Oh, sure. I'm scared to death of him getting choked. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Because there for a long time, he did get choked mm-hmm. a lot, like chronic, chronically mm-hmm. getting choked. And uh, it was so bad that <laughs> I wouldn't allow him to eat chicken. I wouldn't allow him to eat steak. Oh, I understand Any that. kind of meat. I preferred him to eat soft uh, uh, mashed potatoes, noodles, yeah. macaroni and cheese. There wasn't no way in this world I'd let him eat a hot dog. Oh, yeah. You know, I get that. Uh, just because of the trauma that I had seen from the hospital and him getting choked on milk. Yep. <laughs> you know? But uh, I still have a little bit of that because mm-hmm. I, when we're at the kitchen table, we always eat every meal that we eat at the kitchen table. That's yeah. just a rule in this house, and there's no electronics allowed. Yeah. But uh, I'm always side-eyeing. Watching him out of my peripheral vision, vision, ready for anything. You know, and that's, I mean, that is part of 
that trauma bond. Um, and honestly, that is just something I've recently learned about um, reading um, a book that's written by Dr. Nicole LaPera. She is a holistic psychologist. And that's when I got introduced to trauma bonds. And it is basically what, what it says. You create a bond mm. with that trauma. So even though you don't know that it's still there in the back of your mind because of that initial trauma, you're kind of always thinking about that. Now, do you think that people uh, make these trauma bonds to keep from something like that happening or yes. to keep them safe from it to keep you know what i'm saying a hundred percent i think that you build that trauma bond because you are trying to protect yourself from going through that again oh that makes perfect sense you that's are, what i was trying to say yes, yeah you create you know that trauma bond you know you might not even realize that you have created that but it's there and you live your life with that trauma bond, even if you don't think about it, because subconsciously you want to protect your mind, your body from going through that trauma again. So sometimes trauma bonds can hold us back oh, or, yeah. you know, make us crazy protective or, you know, not allow us to do things that we might want to do. Oh, you're talking, um, this is, you're describing yes. me to a T. It, you know, we've got that trauma bond and now we can't really enjoy things that we want to enjoy mm -hmm. because back here in our head, we're fearful that we're going to experience that trauma again. Yeah. I build up these trauma bonds. Mm -hmm. I love that terminology. That's the first time I've ever been able to put a name to it. So mm -hmm. thank you for that. But, uh. I have built up so many of these trauma bonds because I feel like they will keep everybody safe. Absolutely. And, you know, that's totally, completely right. And, you know, people probably I, I'm going to say every person, because even a child can create a trauma <clears throat> bond. You know, as an adult, we can have trauma bonds that were created as a child. Yeah. You know, yeah. that carry on throughout our lives. Mm -hmm. And. You know, you know, unfortunately, sometimes we can try to try to work through them. But, you know, it's fight or flight, you know. Yeah. What are you going to do? Mm -hmm. And more than likely, if you've been through trauma. Yeah. You know, you ain't going to fight. Yeah. You're going to see that and you're going to fly away. You're oh, going to yeah. do yeah. one. You don't want it to get to that point. So. You're going to just kind of hover there. Yeah. You know, and if it does get to that point, I'm just going to, you know. I'm such an overthinker and an over worrier that just recently I've started letting my boys go outside by themselves. Now, I know that sounds crazy. My boys no, is 10 it. years old. I'm that way. But because of a year or two ago, I saw a pack of three or four dogs running around my yard. I didn't know them dogs, and you all will agree that you can't trust any dog. Yeah. You know, I mean, even my dogs I've got out here could turn like that. Absolutely. But I didn't know can. these dogs. So I was like, what if my boys is walking to our mailbox out here at the end of our front driveway? Or if they're 
playing on the trampoline or something. Or some stupid stray dog just comes waltzing through the yard and decides, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get that little boy. Yep. That's all that I thought about. Uh, so that's something that I'm dealing with right now. They're 10 years old. You know, they want to go out, and they do. But I'm usually out there with them with a gun on my hip. <laughs> I mean, I can, I can completely relate. I am so fearful of my kids getting hurt or, you know, failing and being, you know, hurt emotionally oh, yeah. that, you know, neither one of my kids can ride a bicycle because I try to teach them, um, <clears throat> you know, it, it's basically been me, you know, um, their father's dealing with some stuff, but if they fail, yeah. it scared me so badly mm-hmm. that I wasn't emotionally stable enough to continue to teach them. Yeah. I, um, they don't spend the night with anybody unless I, you know, completely know them. Like oh, I have way. to like, same I way. have to know you and have known you for, for years. Yeah. Um, they don't, which the younger ones, of course, don't. But my daughter is 12. <clears throat> she does not and will not for a while have social media. Oh, yeah. I'm don't blame me at all. terrified of, you know, what can happen through social media. Mm-hmm. So I, I very much coddle my kids yeah. almost to the point of holding them back. So I completely get it because I know that there's been situations that I have held them back because I'm so afraid of what will happen to them. You sound just like me. Yeah. So I I completely relate. Just like me. I feel like I've hindered my boys in some ways because of my fears. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much how I feel like. But now I'm I'm getting slowly control of it. I take medicine for PTSD and anxiety and... Uh, and it seems to be helping. I don't like taking medication, but it seems to be working, so I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, uh, I'm I'm getting better day by day. And there ain't nothing wrong with medicine. I feel like God gave somebody that knowledge to create that, to help. Yeah. Um, like I said, the whole, learning the holistic lifestyle, and there's a ton about it, has really, really changed my life. Yeah, you'd probably uh, enjoy a conversation with my wife. She's into, like, herbal, mm-hmm. uh, homegrown medicines and yeah. tinctures and colloidal silver and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and she's do, all about that. And I do believe in it. At You know, when I first heard of it, I was like, that's the stupidest thing in the world. Yeah. But, you know, and I, I, I don't know much about it because I just recently started it. Mm-hmm. But it started out with, you know, the holistic psychologist and how she uses her body to heal her mind and her mind to heal her body. Mm-hmm. And I got to a point where I was like, I have to change. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I have to change for myself, for my family. Yeah. Um, and then... You know, doing that led me on to the more holistic living as, like I said earlier, if you can't get it from the earth, then you don't need it. I completely agree with you. I was looking at having a carpal tunnel syndrome surgery Mm -hmm. on on both my wrists the 17th tomorrow was was supposed to be my surgery day. Uh, Both my hands, especially my right hand, was completely numb, real painful, felt like I was being electrocuted sometimes. And uh, I went to the doctor, blah, blah, blah. 
they set me a surgery date, like I said, which was supposed to be tomorrow. But I also obviously have a lot of tattoos, and I was about a month ago going to my tattoo artist in Berea. Her name's Renee. Shout out, Renee. You're awesome. <laughs> uh, but she also does – she's a yoga instructor. And she told me, she's like, you don't have to do that. Why are you having surgery? You don't mm-hmm. need to do that. And she showed me a couple little moves. She said your body, when you don't stretch it out, absolutely, you don't have it don't have an opportunity to reset itself and align itself and stuff. And she just showed me a couple basic moves. She said, do them for like a minute every night. And I've yep. done that for a week. Complete feeling back in my hands, yep. no pain. And I canceled my surgery. Our bodies has the ability to heal itself. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it takes, you know, just a little bit of listening and learning yeah. something that may be out of your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. But I 100% agree that our- it can heal itself physically and mentally. Absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, it's something else. I mean, going through what you've been through, that was a lot. It was a lot. I can't imagine lot. anybody being able to take much of anything like that without it just going crazy. You know, I mean, I can't imagine. I'm 43 years old. My my mom and dad. My dad is in his 70s, and my mom's in his her 60s. And I can't imagine losing them. Oh, yeah, it's it's just... I'm 43, and I'm, I'll am i tell you right now, I still need my mom and dad, oh, yeah. you know, for advice or Absolutely. whatever, you know, because they're 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 just, they're parents. They're you got to have your parents. And you do, you know. You don't realize, even as an adult, how much you rely on them. Oh, I always you will. You know, and like I said, you know, that's who I always went to for any advice, or if I just needed to pick me up. Oh, yeah. You know, because I knew that they was going to do that. Yeah. Um, I'm so blessed because my sister, you know, does a lot of that for me while trying to heal herself. Yeah. Um, And I'm so thankful that I do still have her. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, going through that did change me. Um, I, I don't say I've lost my friends. I feel like they're there. Yeah. But, you know, I just got to a point where I I really just couldn't be around other people that mm-hmm. who didn't know what I was going through. Yeah. Um. So I really I really cut myself off, and I to a point I'm still that way. I'm very oh, I am too. I'm very private, and I'm a homebody. I like to be home. Yeah. Um. I don't need to go out all the time, and you know. Um. And it my friendships have have you know been hurt because of that um i pray that that they know that i love them and that i'm there if they need me but um i just you know especially now still during this healing process i i've got to fix what's broken Mm -hmm. before i can focus on anything else Oh yeah, absolutely. Got to got to fix yourself first before you can do anything. Yeah. You ain't no good to nobody if you can't. Absolutely. Fix I mean, I'm not. I mean, I'm not. <clears throat> and I, I wasn't a good partner. I wasn't a good mother at the time. Mm-hmm. Um. I mean, my like I said, my friendships kind of fail because I just couldn't. I couldn't think about it all. Yeah. And you know, I can't tell you how many times that people looked at me and said. I, I don't know how you do what you do. I, I couldn't 
get through that and you're still always smiling. And I'm, yeah. and I was thinking, God, if you only knew what happens when I get in this car <laughs> yeah. and I drive home, that was my breakdown time. Cause I didn't like my kids to see me to cry. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, I've got too much going on at home to really allow myself to do that. And mm-hmm. you got to cry. I have to, you have to cry. You have to get mad and you have to let it out and you know that was my time to do that and um and now i can say i am smiling because i'm happy um because i am happy um i've got three beautiful healthy girls and an amazing partner that's came into my life and accepts me for who i am and became a father to my children when he didn't have to have to Mm -hmm. and loves and accepts them. And, you know, we've built this beautiful life together and I've got this phenomenal job and, you know, I do believe that saying that this too shall pass Oh yeah. because there's a time I was like, I'm not going to get through this. Um, but then I did. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm seeing, the brighter side of it now. And well, you're I can, doing good. And I can say, you know, I, I, I am happy. We're not always happy. No. You would be crazy. You would be crazy if he's always happy. Oh yeah. But <laughs> certified. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But for the most part, I can see the joy in everyday life. Mm-hmm. And I want everybody to be able to do that. Um and like I said, when you've been through the worst, yeah. you you start picking out the small things, and I and I can say, well, this smile's genuine because I I am happy. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I mean, I go I go through shit. Who doesn't? It? Everybody. You know, everybody goes through it. But at the end of the day, I look around at what I have, and I'm so phenomenally blessed. And I I want to help, and I want to, you know, support and be the person that people need when they feel like they have nobody yeah because i've been there everybody needs somebody everybody needs somebody i believe what you've been through and the way you've handled it and come out of it that you're exactly where you need to be with your career and stuff like that i Uh, think so uh, those people should be very happy that you're with them yeah i'm very i'm very thankful i'm i'm my job's great yeah my supervisors are phenomenal Mm-hmm. The company is just what it stands for is just what I stand for. So it's yeah. just, it's just been such a blessing. And uh big, big props to them for knowing your story mm-hmm. and, and giving you the job too, because just like you said, a lot of people lies about mm-hmm. their past or whatever it may be. They done that probably with the mentality that me and you have, well, she's been through something. Absolutely. She can help these people. You know, and I didn't hide anything, you know, yeah. Um, I told them, you know, about, you know, my history. I don't even know how it got brought up, but they had asked a question that brought up, you know, the suicide Mm -hmm. and, you know, having suicidal tendencies is super real. Yeah. They never batted an eye and they did not look at me like, oh, well, she's going to be a liability. Mm -hmm. Um, they just, what they told me, our members need that. Oh, absolutely. No. Well, they know that you can't sympathize with them if you don't know what they're talking about. If you don't know, yeah. That's Um, awesome. So it's just, I feel like I'm exactly where I need to be. 
and I really truly believe you know we're gonna have bad days but you're always moving forward yeah I mean always mm-hmm. you don't go backwards you're always moving forward if yep. you can just keep your focus on the ahead then you have nowhere to go but yep. forward you know that's a good way to look at it mm-hmm well, listen, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. And I uh, really appreciate you putting a name to that, too. Trauma bonds. That's yep. that's. I'm going to remember that yeah, because absolutely. I've always wondered what it could be. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, that's exactly that's what something it is. that you yeah. attach to yourself that you've been through. A yep. traumatic experience. I don't know. Do you think it's good to keep them with you or to carry them with you your whole life? I mean, I'm. From what I've read, you know, in the research that, you know, I've done, um, it's okay to keep some of that with you. I mean, some of it, I would yeah. say, yeah, I should have said yeah. maybe not uh, yeah. every bit of it, but because, you know, we do protect ourselves. And I, I yeah. believe that, you know, you know, remembering those trauma bonds in some aspects can help. Mm-hmm. Um, you just have to learn to identify when you need to use that and when okay this is consuming me yeah i can i can move forward from that yeah that's good advice well thank you for coming on like i said this has been really awesome and uh, thank you for coming on here and telling your story i appreciate it thank you so much and if you need to want to come back and tell us about your holistic medicines or whatever, Absolutely. you're welcome to any time. I'd appreciate it. Yes, I'd be happy to. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Welcome to AJ Deals, your one-stop shop for all your everyday needs in the heart of St. Gap, Kentucky. At AJ Deals, we believe in bringing you the best deals on a wide range of products that you use in your daily life. Looking for unique trinkets or toys that bring smiles to your loved ones' faces? We've got an incredible selection that's sure to delight kids and adults alike. Tired of running low on laundry detergent? Need a quick energy boost during those busy days? Grab your favorite energy drink and essentials like batteries, light bulbs, utensils, and more right here at A&J Deals. But that's not all. Our friendly staff is always here to assist you in finding exactly what you need. Customer satisfaction is our top priority. So whether you're a Sand Gap local or just passing through, A&J Deals is your go-to destination for quality products at unbeatable prices. All of this nestled in the heart of Appalachia. Your community, your savings, visit us today at 7416 Highway 421 North in Sand Gap, Kentucky. Our phone number is 606-975-9664.